It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. For years, U.S. officials have been sounding the alarm about an impending catastrophic cyber attack, an enemy strike damaging or destroying real-life infrastructure and causing real harm without using any traditional weapons, just computers. Some, like then-Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, invoked a little World War II hyperbole to sell the threat. The collective result of these kinds of attacks could be a cyber Pearl Harbor. Others preferred a more recent example. Is a cyber 9-11, is a cyber Pearl Harbor within the realm of possibility? So I, I think a, a cyber 9-11 could take all of these different, different sort of areas of, of impact, but amplify them over and over and over again. I mean, look, we're really facing a potential uh, cyber 9-11 or cyber Pearl Harbor. Despite this alarmist rhetoric, there's actually not that many examples that have happened recently. There's, of course, Stuxnet. And in 2015, Russian hackers took down parts of a power grid in Ukraine, causing a blackout for a few hours. Then in 2017, a piece of malware known as Triton almost caused an explosion in a refinery in Saudi Arabia. So how real is this threat nowadays? Should we really be worried about a cyber 9-11? What does that even mean? And what does it even look like? Today, we're talking to Robert Lee, a former NSA analyst and now CEO of Dragos an infosec startup that tracks hackers who go after critical infrastructure and industrial control systems. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Rob, thanks for being here. Um, there was this disruption that happened recently on the West Coast. A lot of people were worrying about it and thinking about it in terms of infrastructure attacks. What did you make of it? Yeah, and I mean, it's an important thing. And I think this is this is always where we have that, that difficult line of nuance, right? On like one hand, we want to talk about the importance of something and, and highlight that it's important. But on the other hand, when things get highlighted in importance, uh, sort of in the context of infrastructure, everyone always assumes you know, destruction, power grids failing, et cetera. So it's really hard to talk about something being important and not in that level of importance. But it, it was an important issue. So basically, from from what we understand, a a remote adversary, so it truly was, you know, malicious hacker or whatever you want to call it, compromised a device or tried to compromise a device that had a vulnerability on it, specifically a Cisco networking gear. And then trying to do so, um, caused a denial of service on the device, whether it was intentional or not. And the denial of service on the device um, was routing communications associated with their SCADA system, so kind of the visibility um, and kind of supervisory control for those grid operations. So if you think about it, no impact, no power loss, no customers would have noticed, and plenty of backup procedures, but someone doing electric power control that loses visibility into at least, you know, one of their one of their plants. And that's not ideal. So it's it's in the same context extremely important of, yeah, this is exactly what we're talking about with resilience and security of our devices so that it can't happen. And on the other extreme it's no, this is not what we're talking about with cyber threats targeting the grid and so forth and hey, you know, calm down the hype. So it kind of sits right in the middle. Well, I mean that's the thing, right? So like what is 
I think we've even talked about this before. And, you know, the first time we spoke was like three years ago or four years ago. And, you know, the, the, the same kind of line persists. Cyber Pearl Harbor. Is that even, you know, is that even possible? Is this something that's that that risk of that hacker or hackers or nation states in the power grid turning the lights out? Has that become more of a reality? Or do you think that since you've gotten into this game, we've actually gotten better at combating it? I think in a lot of ways we're getting better at combating it, but we, we kind of have an evolving landscape. I think if we want to look strategically at the issues that the industrial community faces, one of those resounding issues is that we are moving to more homogeneous infrastructure. So there's a commonality in our infrastructure and the vendors and how we're deploying sites and, and maintaining and monitoring them. And the more and more homogeneous our infrastructure becomes, the easier it is to scale an attack across it. And so a lot of the you know, the big scenarios that get hyped up that really aren't possible become a little bit more possible sort of every year if you want to think that way from a technology standpoint. Not quickly, but it happens. Like it, it's moving in that direction. Um, it's largely the heterogeneous infrastructure that we have that, that really makes it difficult for some of the types of attacks that, that people theorize about. Um, even when we talk about electric power grid, there's not one grid in the United States. So it's not as if you're taking down a grid, you're taking down multiple grids to achieve that kind of effect, which is very, very difficult. So are we moving to a more homogeneous infrastructure over time that does make those attacks more scalable? Yes. Uh, it's glacial speed. It's not it's not like, you know, sort of next year it's an issue. Um, but at the same time, our defenders are spending more and more time to try to get into their environments, understand what are happening on the operations technology side. We're, we're seeing more people get involved in the defensive industrial control systems every year. So there's a lot of optimism we had to. I, I think the balance of so this is what you're kind of alluding to with the Cyber 9-11 and Pearl Harbor stuff is we need to be thinking about what do those big attacks look like and and not lose our imagination and what could happen so that we can prepare. But we don't need to freak out the public and thinking that these things are really a likelihood. You know, just because a power company gets sent a spear phishing email doesn't mean the lights are going to go out. And so that's where the hype needs to kind of come down still. And I think it's getting better. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of hype around that. And I think some of it has to do with some companies trying to hawk their wares to clients saying, you know, we can protect against the cyber Pearl Harbor. But, you know, one thing I, th- I think you've even said this to me before is sort of that kind of event still hinges on actual kinetic warfare between big nation states like the U.S. and Russia. Like, it's not as if Russia while they may be sitting in our networks right now, if they were to do some sort of attack like that, that could get linked to them and that would create real world issues. So why would they do that? Vital U.S. infrastructure, including the power grid, under cyber threat by Russian government hackers, potentially giving the Kremlin the ability to turn off the lights. Yeah, there's, there's always been this narrative. As long, as long as I've been doing this, there's always been the narrative of China and Russia have you know, malware is in our grid that they can activate at any time and causes disruption. It's only an aspect of intent. And I think the intent thing is really interesting and important to understand. And, you know, why they would do something is an important thing to kind of go after. But at the same time, like half that narrative is false. Does various state actors have the capability to get get access to our infrastructure? Yes. Um, have some of them shown this time and time again? Yes. But it's not like they're waiting in dormant with a kill switch deployed across the environment. It's just not the reality of how those attacks work. Um, they've, they've, shortened, they've shortened 
you know, sort of the timeline it would take for them to do something for sure. But it wouldn't be some immediate thing um, that they could just take advantage of. It, it, it's quite a bit more, uh, I would say, yeah, com- complex than that. But um, I, I do think a lot of people focus a lot on those major events, and that's just not what concerns me as much. Because I do think the kinetic world comes into play there. I think if a you know Russian state wants to take down the eastern interconnect of the United States grid, like we're going to war or something darn you know darn close to it. And that's that's not what freaks me out. What freaks me out is kind of twofold. One would be the smaller events that don't rise to that level. Like, could you take out electric power in D.C. for 30 minutes, or could you take out in rural America somewhere for for 30 minutes and still scare the hell out of the population and have a psychological impact that still probably has impact on policy and and maybe even there's an overreaction in Congress that forces this regulation that effectively kills the industry overnight, you know, um, that that's a problem. Or what about adversary getting into sensitive industrial networks they shouldn't be involved in, you know, or refinery or wherever, and accidentally trip over systems and cause damage? I mean, we've seen similar before where in you know, 2014, there was an attack on a steel facility in Germany. And by all accounts, and it's difficult to know these things with, with with high degrees of confidence, especially when there's not a lot of forensic work and stuff being done. But by all accounts, it looks like the adversary accidentally caused an effect that led to massive physical destruction across that environment. You know, how do you cope with that between states when one state looks like they just got attacked by another and it might have even been an accident? So I, I worry about states being idiots and and doing things they shouldn't be doing and accidentally escalate tension. And I also worry about some of those smaller um, effects where you can still have a huge impact, but it doesn't rise the level of, of armed conflict. Well, especially if you look at that, that the first example that you described is sort of perfectly fits in with a lot of adversaries right now looking at the United States, looking at 2020 and just sort of trying to promote general chaos rather than trying to create an actual kinetic war with the U.S. government. Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally fair. We always think, I think, the West and these sort of Pearl Harbor analogies or 9-11 analogies when it comes to attacks on, on, on ourselves and less about these sort of smaller events that could really could actually really disrupt us long term. I think it's a very fair characterization. And I think it's harder sometimes to even focus on a smaller event. If you want to be worried about the large the electric power, as I say, electric power always becomes the example. There's far more industrial infrastructure. Heck, the, the entire world outside of like banks and insurers are effectively industrial companies. But but the, you know, the grid always ends up being a, a good example. And when we look at electric power, if you want to change how we do you know transmission and, and generation, big electric power sort of sites, there's a definable number of touch points. And you, we feel like we have the power to go influence that. When you talk about these smaller events, you're talking thousands of players, and it becomes far less definable in terms of how we're going to get ahead of that problem, and it feels almost insurmountable. So it's not only that going after the smaller players can still have that chaotic type effect, scare the public, influence policy and elections and regulations and everything else, but it's also really difficult for the defenders to kind of scope those issues and, and what they actually want to accomplish across all those sites. Um, so in many ways, it ends up being a really, really smart target. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So your company, you say that you track adversaries that want to disrupt civilization or something to that effect how do you track these types of these types of players like what do you do and how do you vet that they are in fact adversaries to civilization (laughs) yeah so it's it's, uh look i i think you know what you're alluding to is uh like our company motto is safeguarding civilization which i i um i don't know man i i love the idea of that and it's not just like big companies that can pay but it's just sort of you got to take care of everybody and i also love that it's not just our friends. If you really in this game, you got to take care of civilians and people. I don't care where they, you know, live and operate. I think attacking civilian infrastructure is particularly sort of egregious and ought to be uh, against the rules, if you will, uh, for any state. Um, for us, though, obviously we're a technology company, so most of it's where we have our customers, we have our technology deployments, and you know we're in those networks and in those industrial environments, we're getting feedback from from folks. And we have an Intel team that essentially takes that data plus other data around the community and um, partnerships and the normal traditional ways of getting access to to data anyways, um, and turns that data into intelligence about what the adversaries are doing and what adversaries exist. And I think the interesting thing, you know, outside of our company, but just for, you know, takeaway for the larger community is pre-2014, we only really talked about one or two industrial threats at all. We'd talk about like one malware name and then maybe one or two teams. And when my team really started taking a look at this in 2015 and started poking around and we started getting more and more collection out of these industrial environments, we started seeing more and more things. The fact that we're tracking 10 you know, nation state kind of teams targeting industrial operations around the, uh, around the world. And, and you know, I think it's, it's easy to highlight that team, but I, I think What's more important as a again a message to the community is as we get better collection, we find a lot of stuff. And I think the narrative over the years has been, oh, well, there's not a lot of industrial specific threats. And in reality, we just have had like Schrodinger's ICS. You know, we just don't look into the industrial networks hoping <laughs> that's not dead. And I and I think as we've gone and started looking at these industrial networks and getting access and and, and getting that visibility, it's more and more becoming apparent that these things have been not only a target all along, but uh, states and teams and, and tradecraft and things we've never seen before. I, I think there's tons of reasons to target those organizations. You know, it's not only military and, and disruption, there's a ton of intellectual property. If you want to steal the intellectual property of a company, it's not going to be in, you know, the Windows email environment. It's going to be in how they're manufacturing their goods or the pharmaceuticals or or, you know, how they're actually producing steel and doing it in a really good way. I mean, it's it's, it's a massive amount of wealth in terms of those environments. So you're seeing mainly nation states that are engaging this type of thing? Um, I would say mainly nation states and their uh, sort of components. What I mean by that is in the same way we would expect the United States government to use their defense industrial base, we're seeing effectively the same thing with other states where it might be a hacker for hire type group or people that are developing exploits for sale but they're becoming components of nation state operations. We're not seeing a you know, criminal element 
by themselves go target industrial. We're seeing state sort of influenced and and um, in cooperation sort of state efforts for sure. Now, you know, there's been a, a, the obvious players kicked around like China and Russia and even Israel to some extent and France and all these other you know big countries that have the capability to go after infrastructure and critical infrastructure. What about places like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela? Like you see that kicked around a lot. Is that true? In terms of them being aggressors or them them being aggressors, maybe maybe more specifically yeah, Venezuela. Sure, right? I think it's fair to say for any modern state, and this is this goes down to collection. Like why outside of like Snowden leaks, why don't we hear a lot about NSA operations? Well, because there's not really a good cyber threat intelligence community in China, you know, or we're not seeing like a lot of Russian firms doing this type of analysis. The closest we get to it is like a Kaspersky's great team doing doing some stuff. So it really comes down to like where you're collecting and then the analysis you're putting on top of it. Why don't we hear more about Pakistani, you know, cyber threats? Um, because we're not an Indian energy company. And so it, a lot of these threats end up being geopolitical and regional. Um, it's it's effectively statecraft and intelligence work happening out on the, the, the global scale like it would normally, but just in this case with the components of cyber. And so Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Egypt, um, Brazil, you know, name your player. If they're sort of a modern um, entity that has a strong intelligence community, it is a high likelihood that they have a cyber component to that. And they'd be sort of irresponsible not to for their own country. And industrial control systems, or ICS, have become such a main component of having statecraft and policy influence and intellectual property theft that it just is a natural evolution of these teams. I think in a lot of cases, you know, states tend to try to get parity with each other. If one state has a capability, another state wants to be able to have that capability as well. And so as we're seeing more of these things, you know, sort of coming to light, I think it's also very common for these states to try to keep up with each other. Now, you know, some some big, big news that happened late last night that a lot of people in the InfoSec community were tweeting about today was that the IDF apparently undertook an airstrike against some hackers, some Hamas cyber operatives. So I know you have experience in the government. I mean, first of all, how does how does one country identify what a cyber operative is? And to your knowledge, have you ever heard of the U.S. government or other Western nations targeting hackers who are, quote unquote, part of a terroristic organization and deemed cyber operatives? Yeah, so this is a super interesting case, and I think, yeah, I do see a lot of. I, I kind of joke, and I and I, I'm really not trying to disparage everybody all at once, but it, it is very interesting to see like malware versus engineers and and um, really good technical folks all of a sudden become international relations theorists and military experts <laughs> overnight on Twitter. <laughs> yes, it is, uh, agreed. It is interesting. It's a um, it's a so, real laugh riot. <laughs> yeah. So look, what I'll what I'll say of that is. In this specific case, there's a lot of questions. You know, Israel has a well-fleshed-out, you know, target deck of places they're going to strike and cells of Hamas and others that they're going to go after. And they do, you know, there's plenty of tension in that region, anyways. And it's and it's unfortunate, but there's there's everything from rocket strikes to, to you know, sort of the um, proverbial feedback. And and it's I'm interested to know if this really was a we targeted them because it was a cyber component and this is what happened, or if it wasn't just part of the normal 
hey, this is the next target on the list, and let's see if we can spin it to have a cyber element. Like, we don't know how much of this is PR effectively and, like, states messaging to each other and how much of it is real. But it, but let's let's just take it at face value that it's real. This would be one of the few public cases. I, I If I'm not mistaken, and I don't know if this was leaks or if this was just public discussion, but a couple of years ago there were discussions around drone strikes specifically targeting cyber, you know, experts of uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda, um, and effectively the folks that were using, you know, internet forums and others to not only recruit people but also see if they can't do some like hacking type operations. Oh, it was, and, it and was they in the were... releases. It was in the releases. They used to say, I, I just found one today. It said, you know, targeting an, an ISIS internet cafe. Yeah, exactly. And so I like without, so obviously since my background is in the government intelligence community, I, I, I want to be careful here, but um, is, do I think this is the first example? No. Um, do I think it is a very public high profile example? Yes. And the fact that Israel through an official mechanism, which still it makes me all sorts of sad that Twitter is an official mechanism, but, yeah. but uh, through an official mechanism came out and said that the purpose of this was to go after, you know, a cyber operator. Yeah, that, that's a that's a pretty big deal. I, I, I think it needs to be thought through and, and kind of analyzed and, and it would be good to get more information from Israel, of course, but um, it, it is a very important event. And from a how would they know who it is or that it was located at that facility, I mean, it's kind of two components to that. One, we always talk about attribution being hard, um, but it's not impossible and it's not that hard. Like you're, it's, it's getting easier over time. And when I say not that hard, I don't mean like a couple of people could figure it out. I mean, like as an intelligence requirement that can be worked towards, like the organizations can really work towards it, but governments really have a, a hold over that. Mm-hmm. I think if you're looking at the ability to understand how an attack happens, private sector wins over government every day. They're in those networks. They're in seeing the attacks and they can pattern it out. The best cyber defenses and, and innovation we're seeing is absolutely come out of the private sector. But in terms of attribution, government almost has a monopoly on it. Like some of these companies have gotten really good at it, but there's also a lot of times that they're wrong and just nobody calls them out or has the ability to call them out. Like when's the last time we've seen a major vendor come out and go, oh yeah, it wasn't actually Russia. Like never. So there's no way we're getting it right 100% of the time. I think some of this is just marketing. But in this case, if State of Israel says, hey, we had attribution on something, then it's a high likelihood that they did. Usually when states do that, they're they're very confident. And, especially and I ones also cannot with, imagine. Yeah, especially with ones yeah. that are as sophisticated as Israel in this space. Yeah, and it's usually not just you know cyber forensics. It's usually human and signal intelligence and, and everything else as well. And it's not like Israel doesn't have an amazing human capability around Hamas and, and, and the region. And then you tie all that stuff together. I'm, I'm confident they came with the right answer. And I, I also cannot imagine that Hamas is the most sophisticated in terms of like hiding attribution. Um, so I think it's I think it's less of a case of did they get it right and more of a case of was that actually the purpose of the operation was to kill them based off of you know being a cyber operator and and what does that mean for the community? And I and again I think that's one for states to kind of work through. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, for me, my big my big question is I, I'm not doubting that they are cyber operators, if that's what Israel is calling them. My question is, is a cyber operator a hacker capable of taking down a power grid, or are we talking about a guy who made a couple memes and is a propagandist and has been, you know, painted as such? 
You know what I mean? And yeah, I think there's a I, lot of conflation in that, in, in the way, especially I think there's a ton. Uh, uh, Western nations have done that. They're, they're sort of their ways of classifying these kinds of internet operators. You know what I mean? And I think I have never felt comfortable with how states refer to anything in the hacking community. Like yeah. ever. <laughs> like it's, it's, Sometimes it's, yeah, that dude is GRU and developed malware to deploy against the DNC. And yep, yep, that, that's real. And then they're like, yeah, and that guy that, that uh, hacked Cyber Command's account, I mean, like logged in with the default credentials? Like, that's not the same, man. That's, yeah. like, that's totally different. Like, yeah. Or to your point, like they had a meme that made fun of somebody. Well, they're a terrorist. No, that's, that's not terrorism. Like, that guy just like made fun of you. And, and so I think there's, Got it. it. It's it is terrifying when we look at states because uh, their view and definitions of things. I mean, we've we've seen this plenty of times in counterterrorism. I, I think you know what you call a terrorist versus a dissident is, is a very thin line in many countries. And so when we see cyber operators doing terrorism or military operations, what does that actually mean? Uh, again, a very very thin line. And that that goes to any discussion of international relations, though, especially when you're talking UN. Um, uh, sort of articles around conflict, God forbid, even like, you know, getting into like UN 2-4 for armed conflict. Of uh, Like there's there's a whole view of what you can do and how, and of course rules of the road for proportionate responses. And and I don't know what happened here. Like did did they try to break into the Israeli, you know, Israeli government networks and they got caught and they also found there was other things going on and so they destroyed the building? Like, okay, was it somebody... Yeah, uh, sort of shit posting online. Uh, I, I doubt it, but if that's the case, then probably not a proportionate response. Yeah. All right, Rob, thank you for coming on and telling us about the dire straits of the Cyber Pearl Harbor 9-11 Hiroshima <laughs> event that's coming our way. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Thank you for having me. This week's episode was recorded by John Northcraft, Produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bicirai, edited by Sophie Cases, and hosted by me, Ben Maku. Please rate and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.